This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. That's just really, really good stuff. Thank you so much for those reminders directly from, from Scripture. Just really, really good. Romans chapter 5. Uh, grab your Bibles or open your devices. Make sure that you're uh, tuned in. This is part four, and uh, we are coming to the end of our series that we've called Deconvert. And for the last month, we've talked about the matter of religion, which seems like really the appropriate thing to talk about in church. But our reference to religion has not been in a positive light. Because we've been saying that we need to deconvert. We need to lose our religion, and we need to lose it now. Because religion in itself is not the answer to our spiritual needs. Religion condemns, but is powerless to save. But then after deconverting from religion, we need to fill that void with with Jesus, and, and He alone can save. Now, let me just try to catch us up real fast with a quick review, and then we'll do kind of a sprint towards the finish line of our series. Last week, we made the statement that all religions, at least when it comes to values and when it comes to principles for proper living, all religions are basically the same. For starters, we said that most religions believe in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we kind of went through several religions, went through, uh, looked at different philosophers that said the same thing. So that's kind of a common denominator. And then we mentioned eight other rules that C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, The Abolition of Man, he identified as, as crossovers, common denominators with most every religion, such as honor your parents, don't lie. Don't have sex outside of marriage, protect the weak, don't harm others, etc. But then we said that another common denominator of those same religions is that there's failure. Most religions have this good standard of laws and rules that, you know, we, we would just probably all say we need to follow, but the members of these religions don't live up to their own rules. And we said that sometimes as Christians, we think, well, okay, we do a better job than, than other religions of, of keeping those rules. But last week, remember, we went through eight of those rules, and most of us raised our hand, guilty, guilty, guilty. We had broken some and maybe even all of those rules. And so we raised the question, why can't we follow our own rules. Why can't we? I mean, we agree that those rules are good. We, most of us would agree those rules are, are rules that God has established for our own good. Why do we keep messing up all the time? Well, the reason is because the human race was born with the law of sin and death. And that law causes us to default to rule-breaking. And when we break a rule, when we sin, something dies. When, when a husband or wife sins and is unfaithful to their spouse, marriages die. When we sin and don't treat our friends right, friendships die. 
When nations sin, they die. When cultures sin, they die. But the good news is that God sent His Son, Jesus, to help us with His failure. And that right there is, is kind of the fork in the road. It's the, the why. Because religion says that the answer to our problem of not being able to keep all of the rules is to try harder. You know, just turn over a new leaf, reboot, be more disciplined. But we believe the answer to man's failure is something called grace and forgiveness. And that comes only from Jesus. Religion leads you to a dead end. Jesus leads you to eternal life. That's enough of a review. That brings us up to today. And let me just kind of throw out my goal for this morning. And, uh, you know, I told the early service, I said, as I thought about my goal, it's depressing. If a pastor announced this while I was sitting in the congregation, I would be tempted to walk out and go look for another church. But don't do that. Here's my goal. You ready? My goal this morning is to try to help you understand that you are a worse person than you think you are. That's my goal. Welcome to the Church of God Holiness, where we always try to build up your self-esteem. But in our discussion today, I want to talk about how bad and ungodly you are and how bad and ungodly I am. But then I want to end up with some awesome news and talk about the solution to our ungodliness. Let's read three verses. And, you know, we're going to be having frequent stops along the way to try to get off all of the meat off of these verses. And, and I've told you before, I was raised in South America. And, you know, they, they will clean up a bone so much. And I have been known, I love fried chicken. Preachers love fried chicken. And so, you know, when I, I finish my chicken and clean it up, I see somebody else that hasn't cleaned up it, it up as well. I've been known to take their bone off of their plate and clean it up and do it right. So, anyway, we're going to have frequent stops to try to get all the meat off of these verses. These words come from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Let's make our first stop. We didn't get very far, did we? Why were we powerless? Here's the reason. Because until Jesus came, all we had was religion. And religion is powerless to change our life. So, so that's why Paul said, when we were still powerless to fix ourselves with a bunch of rules, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the... What's the next word? Say it. Ungodly. Let's make our second stop here. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about this. If I were to walk up to you and ask, are you ungodly? Troy, are you ungodly? Craig, are you ungodly? Ryan, are you ungodly? You know, most of us would be tempted to try to soften it, and, and, and we couldn't admit that we're ungodly. We would probably say, well, yeah, I'm not perfect but I'm better than I was. You should have seen me a few years ago. Or we might not say this, but some of you would think this, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than a lot of people that go to this church. And simply because we don't cook meth, at least I hope you don't, <laughs> and because we didn't get our name in the police section of the paper this week, 
or maybe because we've never gotten a speeding ticket in our entire life. And you know, that Barger guy, or that Hubbard guy, or that Trussell guy, they've gotten more tickets than I have fingers and toes. Because we come out looking better than so-and-so, we tend to push away from the label of being ungodly. But the Bible says that ungodly is not necessarily how we act, it's who we are. It's our default condition. You were born in ungodliness, I was born in ungodliness. In my devotions Friday morning, I read that powerful passage in Isaiah 64. It kind of has a different flavor in the message Bible. It says this, we've sinned and kept at it so long. We're all sin-infected, sin-contaminated. Our best efforts are grease-stained rags. That's who we are. We're ungodly. Let me tell a story that I think will help set things up as we talk about this. A few years ago, I went on a missions trip to a, a country where the government in 1978, in order to curb its rapidly growing population, decreed that families could only have one child. And even though there were a few exceptions, one of the exceptions, uh, you know, if twins were born, they were allowed to keep both twins. Um, but they were pretty strict with it, especially in the urban areas, you know, in the rural areas, they, they couldn't police it as well, but uh, in the urban, urban areas, they did police it, and the majority of families were one-child families. Now, to enforce this law, I mean, can you imagine just the logistical nightmare to do this, but they did two things to enforce it. One, they went on a major campaign to perform massive numbers of sterilizations, and I read after one source this past week, just kind of researching this whole concept, but they, they said that this one source said that in one year, in 1983, there were over, this is staggering, over 20 million forced sterilizations in that country, which in 1983, uh, that, that was uh, more than the combined populations of Los Angeles, New York City, and Chicago. I mean, try to... Try to comprehend the, the logistics and, and the medical aspect of forcing sterilizations on 20 million people in one year. One year. But then the second way this country enforced the one-child decree was through abortion. Abortions, and because of the type of government that this country had, officials, official numbers were never made public. But again, this source that I was reading after, they estimated that the number of abortions in that 35-year period exceeded, and this is staggering, 336 million abortions. And, and I quickly Googled the population of United States right now, and closest numbers I could come up with were 2019. But in 2019, I believe our population in America was 329 million. And so more abortions than our population in America today. And this source said that the majority of those abortions were, listen, forced upon ladies to make sure that they would stay within the one-child mandate. 
Now, that one-child law was revised in 2016, and even though the country doesn't allow, uh, give opportunity for unlimited children, couples can now have two children in, instead of one. But in that country, to a large degree, human rights violations are common, not to mention that children with any type of handicap or, or disability, they're not valued. But someone was telling about a visit they had made to an orphanage in the country. And, and on my trip, we did go by an orphanage. You can't imagine the size of orphanages. They are just high-rise buildings, multi-story buildings. But this person was, was telling me about their visit to this, this orphanage. And they said, it, it's hard to imagine that anything like this actually exists on our planet. And, and, and the orphanage was, um, was a seven-story building full of children that had been left at the doorstep of the orphanage or who had been left in different parts of the city by dumpsters or on steps of businesses. People had found the babies, taken them to authorities. The authorities had taken them to this orphanage. But, but in this building that, that was seven stories high, again, were, were children that were kind of looked at, and this, is, this really bothers me, but they were looked at as throwaway children. They were looked at as disposable children. Children that had no value. No one wanted them. And they were treated that way. You had room after room after room with row after row after row of simple cribs with babies who just lay there then cried. Not nearly enough staff to adequately care for them. But, but, but the part that, that, that really got to me, according to this person that had visited this orphanage, on the top floor, on the seventh floor of that orphanage was that they kept not babies, but older kids, we would probably consider them to be middle school age. And the kids on this floor had all kinds of disabilities. Some of the disabilities were mental, and, and we would call them mentally handicapped. But in this particular country, they weren't concerned about sensitivity, and they just called them retarded. Others on this seventh floor had physical handicaps, and, and this person said some of them were not that serious. In fact, in our country, many of their issues could have been corrected with surgery or proper medical care. And even though most outsiders were, are not allowed to go up on that seventh floor, this person was allowed to go up there. And, and when he saw the conditions, he was absolutely horrified. He couldn't wait to get out of there. He was so offended. It was unimaginable. He said that that was the most unfair, the most awful place he had ever seen. And, and, and the kids were treated like, again, throwaway kids. They had no life, nor would they ever have any life in the future. They were kids just taking up space. Now, even though our country seems to be pretty messed up these days, we still can't really comprehend how a country that... A country that is an economic powerhouse, a country that is advanced medically, how could their moral conscience let this take place? We think this is inexcusable. Well, the reason I, I, I took time to tell this story is just to say that those same kinds of attitudes that cause innocent children to be treated like disposable kids, those, those same kind of actions that are reprehensible to us, those attitudes, those actions, they're in your DNA. They're in my DNA as well. 
You know, as I said, my goal today was to let you know you're way worse people. We're way worse people than what we think we are. You know, we're, we're all capable of those atrocities and more. Our scripture said that we're not just sinners, but we're way worse than that. We're ungodly sinners. And that makes conditions right for any of us to do something really bad. And, and afterwards, those close to us would say, I'm just shocked. I never saw that in them. In fact, how many times have we heard of a mass shooting or, or some other type of horrible crime? Maybe a spouse takes out another spouse and then takes out the children. And, and invariably, we hear the family or their own family, their neighbors say, I am just flabbergasted. They, they seem to be so gentle and so kind and loving and respectful. I can't believe that. I'm speechless. I would have never imagined But those kinds of terrible behaviors, those kinds of actions, those kinds of sins, those kinds of crimes are lurking in our DNA. Why? Because we were born with a law of sin and death that causes us to be ungodly. Now, in this part of our country, we're we're typically used to a lower level of evil. You know, we read the police section of our local paper, and I thought about bringing this week's paper to illustrate my point, but... I think some of your names were in it, so. (laughs) But we're used to reading about crimes in our country, and we tend to think, you know, yeah, they're bad, but not terrible, terrible. You know, it's just stuff like drug possession, larceny, sometimes a little minor assault, you know, they'll get into a domestic argument, or... Or, or here's one that's common, you know, the dog accidentally gets loose within the city limits, and so the dog catcher comes and cites them for a dog at large that was not on a leash, and so they're fined, whatever it is. But my point is that sometimes I, I think we get to feeling, well, yeah, in our community, it's not perfect, and, and yeah, it's now a good idea to have security cameras, and we do here at the church, and And we tend to think, you know, the bad stuff that happens here is just kind of petty. It's just annoying. It's just kind of a hassle. But but this is a really good community. It's pretty safe and pretty good people. And I would agree with that. But but again, I want to emphasize that our hearts and your hearts and, and my heart, our hearts are worse than we think. And I know that sounds like a pessimistic old dude that watches Fox News all day long of which I don't. In fact, I don't even know what channel Fox News is on. I'm sorry if that offends you Fox Newsers here, but but our hearts are worse than what we know. And for those times when we turn on the news and discover that some guy kidnapped a little girl and chained her up and raised her in the shed behind his house and fathered two children with her before she was 15, we go, whoa, where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from the very same nature that is in your heart and in my heart. And I know you think you're better than that. And I I know I think I'm better than that. But but those atrocities stem from the ungodly nature that Paul was talking about. Those those atrocities stem from the selfishness that resides in every heart. It it stems from the anger that's hanging out in the shadows of every heart. It it stems from the emotions that are just a reaction away from being out of control. And, And it stems from the same fear and the same sense of desperation that's found in the heart of every human being. And all of those things... They're just a hair trigger away from turning into a horrible crime. And again, I, I, I know we can't imagine ever doing anything like that. 
But you've probably never been that hungry. You've probably never been that desperate. You've probably never felt that threatened. You've probably never had that much insecurity in your life. You've probably never been that depressed. And, and so if left unchecked and if left unredeemed, there's no limit to the evil and no limit to the ungodliness that's in our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's us. Now that I've completely sent us all into major depression, let's go back, continue reading what Paul says. So he's told us before we stopped you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Rarely. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Let's stop again. I am so grateful for our men and women in uniform. You know, in a, in a day and age when it seems that only those officers who abuse their power ever get in the news, and, and that abuse does happen. It's real. It's a shame when it does happen. I believe there should be consequences. But I'm thankful for the 99.9%. Those of our officers are military that do their job with class and with gentleness and with excellence, despite people who sometimes don't deserve class, gentleness, and excellence. I'm reminded of Private First Class Ross McGinnis. He illustrated what the Apostle Paul was talking about. A few years ago, Officer McGinnis, who packed only 136 pounds in, into his six-foot frame. He was part of Company C, 1st Battalion, 26th Infantry Regiment, assigned on a mission near Baghdad. This 19-year-old amateur mechanic from Knox, Pennsylvania, was manning the gunner's hatch when an insurgent tossed a grenade from above. It flew past McGinnis, down through the hatch, lodged near the radio mount. His platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Cedric Thomas of Longview, Texas, recalled what happened next. Private First Class McGinnis yelled, Grenade! Grenade, it's in the truck! Now McGinnis, since he was manning the, the gunner's hatch, he could have jumped out and escaped. But he chose not to. Instead... He chose to save his friends. So here's what he did. He jumped into the truck, pinned the grenade down with his body, took the full impact, took his life, but he saved the life of four of his friends. I'm thankful for the many men and women in our country that would never hesitate to do that. They would never hesitate to give their life for someone. You know, I'm also thankful for regular men and women in the world that are also here. As I read about a man named Ignacio Echevarria, a, a 39-year-old bank employee. You can Google this and read it. June 3rd, 2017, on the London Bridge there in England, terrorists deliberately drove their vehicle into pedestrians and then jumped out and began stabbing people. Ignacio was on his bicycle that day, riding by. He was carrying one of the passions of his athletic life, a skateboard. When he saw the terrorist attack, he did not hesitate. He jumped off his bike, ran over there, had no weapon except for a skateboard. And he used that as a weapon. 
And even though he wasn't completely able to stop the act of terrorism, his actions did buy some time for those who were nearby. They were able to run and escape. But Ignacio wasn't so fortunate. Two of the terrorists stabbed him and mortally wounded him. He died that day trying to save others. And so Paul in our scripture says, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. A few do. And what do we call them? We call them heroes. He goes on and says in verse 8, but God, this is so powerful, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still, what's the next word? Sinners. What, what's a sinner? A sinner is, I didn't follow the rules. I was a bad boy. I was a bad girl. I, I, I tried to follow, but I just couldn't. It wasn't in me. I failed. While we were still sinners, what, what, what comes next? Say it out loud. Christ died for us. So Paul says that on occasion, someone might die for Somebody they love might, might die to save the life of a family member. They, they might die to save the life of a good and righteous person. But, but God decided, and this is so amazing, that, that his son would die not for righteous people, not for godly people, not for good people, not for those who follow the rules. Rather, God decided that Jesus would die for ungodly sinners. That's you. <laughs> That's me. And remember that being ungodly people, we all have the same potential of evil in our hearts, the same potential as those who storm a school and shoot innocent young people or those who kidnap young girls for their sex trafficking business or those who fly planes into buildings to kill as many people as possible. Our hearts are so wicked and so ungodly, much worse than you ever imagined. In fact, you don't have to go looking for trouble. Trouble is in that heart of yours that's beating inside your chest. But God sent his son to die for messed up people. God sent his son to die for ungodly people like you and like me. So what's the solution? Is there one? Will this battle with evil and wickedness and ungodliness always rage in our hearts? What's the solution? It's frustrating, isn't it? I I know the good I want to do, but I can't do it. That's what... Paul says later on in Romans, I I try hard, but I mess up. Well, I love that long before Paul talked about the solution in the book of Romans, in the Old Testament, by the way, for those of you who dismissed the the Old Testament, you need to open that back up again. Oh, the Old Testament is so powerful. But in the book of Isaiah, we get a glimpse into the solution. And again, You know, I keep referring to the Message Bible. That's the way I'm going through the Bible right now in my devotions. But I read this this past week, just kind of my systematic study in the book of Isaiah. Here's a little snapshot. Here's just a little piece of prophecy, what would become the solution. Listen, 700 years after the Scripture. So Isaiah chapter 59, verse 12, again in the message, it says, Our wrongdoings pile up before you, God, and, and try to get just the mental picture here because there's some vivid imagery. So wrongdoings pile up before you. So picture the pile of wrongdoings getting higher and higher. There's a lie here. There's a bad word here. 
there's gossip here. There's an act of cheating here. There's a look at pornography here. So kind of do you get that picture that's wrongdoings pile up before you? goes on and says, our sins stand up and accuse us. So it's like our specific sins stand up and say, liar, cheater, pornographer. They're just accusing us. Our wrongdoings stare us down. And here I kind of got the picture of, you know, our, our, our sins just giving us a dirty look. goes on and says, we know in detail what you've done. You know, the, the, the sins know every detail. Mocking and denying God, not following our God, spreading false rumors, inciting sedition, pregnant with lies, muttering malice. And then the next six statements are an exact description of October 25th, 2020. This is today, right here it is. Justice is beaten back. Think about that. How many times does the criminal get off scot-free and the victim ends up suffering? Justice is beaten back. Righteousness is banished to the sidelines. And I mean, do we have to say anything else about that? Here's one I think that is very appropriate. Truth staggers down the street. Uh, unstable and you know this presidential campaign has seen truth staggering has been long on lies short on truth honesty is nowhere to be found it's it's almost as if we say honesty uh what's that i i think i've heard of it what's that good is missing in action and then this next one is so true anyone renouncing evil is beaten and robbed Get that mental picture there that if you stand up against what you believe is wrong or, or stand up for what you believe is right, oh my word, you will be slaughtered. Whether it's a statement for the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman or the sanctity of life in the womb, you get slaughtered for being bigoted and narrow-minded and judgmental. But then what comes up next gives us a glimpse of what would happen 700 years down the road. This is, this is so amazing. In verse 15, it says, God looked and saw evil looming in the horizon. We've already talked about it. So much evil, no sign of justice. He couldn't believe what he saw. Not a soul around to correct this awful situation, which to me sounds hopeless. Not a soul that could correct this awful situation hopeless humanity was condemned to die hopeless but isaiah gives just a little glimpse what would happen 700 years later this is so awesome not a soul around to correct this so he did it himself (laughs) isn't that awesome God decided through his son Jesus, it says, so he did it himself, took on the work of salvation, fueled by his own righteousness. In other words, God looked down on a messed up world. He had sent Adam, but Adam had failed. So he sent the flood and started all over again with Noah. Noah failed. 
King David, a man after God's own heart, failed. And then the religious leaders took on trying to devise a system where you could find God. It failed. It was a train wreck. So God decided to take on the work of salvation, fueled by His own righteousness. He sent His sinless, perfect Son to die for sinful, broken, ungodly people. And where religion only offered condemnation, His Son offered salvation. Where religion offered rules, His Son offered relationship. Where religion offered a complicated complicated formula where not everybody could get in. Jesus offered salvation where everybody is welcome. Everybody can get in the same way. Everybody meets the requirements. Everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirement. And that's the fairness of the gospel. Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirements. You know, there aren't some people that, well, you only have to keep eight commandments. And, well, you're extra good because, and so you just keep six and then... You know, some people buy their way in, and some people kind of inherit it from their parents because, you know, they were born in the Bible Belt here, right around here, where everybody believes in God, and everybody gets in the same way. Every single other religion believes you have to somehow, quote-unquote, good your way to God. But you don't ultimately know how good is good enough. So what's better than that? Jesus is better than that. Everybody can meet the requirement. That's the message for everyone in a broken, messed up, ungodly, unfair world. That's the only thing that's really fair. While you were still ungodly, while you were still an ungodly sinner, Christ died for you. What religion was powerless to do, God did on your behalf by sending His Son. A do-over won't solve the problem. A second chance won't do the trick. Rehab alone, education alone, church attendance alone, jail time alone, getting the right president in or the right Supreme Court justice alone won't solve our problems. Because it all stems back to a heart that is sinful and deceitful and wicked. And the solution again, you know by now it's not religion, but Jesus. Jesus offering grace and mercy, forgiveness and cleansing for your ungodly heart and my ungodly heart. And what he wants to do is take that ungodliness and create in us a clean heart. That the psalmist talked about, oh God, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart. You know, not according to the law of sin and death, but rather according to the law of the spirit of life. So, as we get ready to go home, could we just all together this morning lose our religion? Can we just do that today, just on the 25th of October, 11.46 a.m.? Could we just... Maybe we've been relying on our rule-keeping. Maybe we've been relying on our baptism. Maybe we've been relying on the fact that we don't cook meth and there's somebody a lot worse than we are. But you know what? In our heart, in our DNA is ungodliness that is scary. 
That is so scary. You know, I was just talking in pastors per partners this morning. I want to tell this and then I want to pray, but I was just kind of telling the direction that we were going today and this man spoke up that is very, very ungodly and or very godly, I'm sorry, very godly and closer, closer to God than I will ever be. He's way up here and I'm way down here. But here's what he he said just to illustrate this. He said this past week I had an encounter with a man. And uh, he said this man had just been really irritating me. And he said, I can't believe it to where I went and began talking with him. I began confronting him. And he said, it came to the point, and, and he was just admitting this. He said, it got so ugly. He said, I realized we were both screaming at each other. And he said, it just scared me. He said, I, I felt so defeated. And, and again, this isn't a man like Joe Trussell. This is a, a godly man. This is a hero of mine. We have no idea what's in our unredeemed hearts. So today... Could we just ask God to consecrate us? Could we just ask God to cleanse us, create in us a pure heart? That he would give us purity? So as we pray, could we just maybe say, God, I want to, I I, I want to give myself to Jesus now. Could we do that? Could you just bow your heads, nobody looking? Is there somebody that would say, Pastor, God has really spoken to my heart today. Would you just pray for me? And God's really doing a work in me. Just pray. Anybody lift a hand? Anybody? Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? God's doing a work. Thank you. Thank you. You can put it down. Lord, uh, I pray that our lives would be different, not because of anything I've said, but Lord, because of your word, because of your spirit, Lord, thank you for this powerful lesson in Romans, in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul was trying to help us realize that we need more than just empty religion, but we need Jesus. Oh God, I I pray that you would just take our focus away from maybe rules, and Lord, that we would just put our focus on Jesus. God, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us for those times when we've maybe just been judgmental of others that have done things a lot worse than we've ever done. But God, our our nature, unless it's redeemed, we could be there tomorrow. And just like that one man said, I was scared that I found myself doing this. And Lord, I just pray that you would have Lord, the grace to give us a clean heart. Create in us a pure heart. Lord, let us live our lives this week with with Jesus in mind. And Father, let us live our lives so carefully and so prayerfully that, Lord, we we would just have that encounter with Jesus and that we would live our lives with the law of the life of the Spirit. And 
Lord, we know that as long as we're in the flesh, the flesh is going to get in the way. The flesh is going to keep trying to raise its, up its ugly head. But Lord, we know that the law of the Spirit is greater than the law of, of death and sin. So Father, I pray that you would help us to live our lives with Jesus there. Thank you for providing the solution to this frustration of, man, I try, but I can't. And thank you for giving us the solution of Jesus. We love you. So Father, we just consecrate ourselves to you right now. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for speaking to my heart this week. We ask this in the strong, the powerful, the pure name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all of God's people said, amen and amen and amen. Thank you for coming. I've loved studying God's word, word with you this morning. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.